I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. We have with us today on The Truth of the Matter, Bill Reinch, who's a senior advisor and Shoal chair in international business at CSIS, and my partner on The Trade Guys. Bill, welcome. We also have with us Gerard DePippo, senior fellow in our economics program at CSIS. This is Gerard's first time on Truth of the Matter. It's great to have you here. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. All right, guys. So I want to ask you about the latest round of sanctions towards Russia. What is contained in them? So the big thing is Sparebank, which is the largest commercial bank in Russia, is now under full blocking sanctions. It was previously just prohibited from U.S. correspondent bank links. They've also added Alpha Bank, which is a smaller bank, uh, to the blocking statute. Do you think that these sanctions are going to be effective? And Bill, I want to start with you on this. Are they effective? They've been more effective than I expected, to be frank with you. I think the financial ones, and Gerard can elaborate, have really done a good job of substantially knocking Russia out of the financial markets and I think pushing them towards default on their obligations by making it impossible for them to pay their debt. There's holes and leakage, there always are, but I think, you know, the immediate impact has been pretty sharply negative. On the trade side, there's been a whole series of basically embargoes on specific Russian exports and also export controls to limit Russian imports of particularly items that will assist the military. And those have been rather remarkable because we've got now 37 countries in addition to us who've all agreed to do things the same way on, on these sanctions, which you know a couple of years ago would not have been possible. I mean, because the sanctions that we've imposed are extraterritorial. That is, they don't just refer to U.S. exports to Russia or French or German exports to Russia. They're called, they're secondary sanctions because what we say to China, for example, is you may not export anything to Russia if it contains U.S. content or if it was made with U.S. equipment or if it was made with U.S. technology. So we are claiming jurisdiction over Chinese production and other third country production. That really means semiconductor chips because most of them are made with U.S. equipment or with U.S. Uh, design and technology. So this has an extraordinary reach. And the fact that the Europeans agreed to this is, and are doing it, are enforcing it, is, is unprecedented. And the Commerce Assistant Secretary who's running this particular show, Thea Kendler, made some remarks today where she said that so far it looks like it's being enforced. It doesn't look yet like people are, are breaking it. Now, on that side, this is a slow boil, if you will. It's like putting the frog in the pot in cold water and gradually heating it up. You know, Russia has a lot of tanks. They have a lot of military equipment. They're going to break, and they're going to need spare parts, and they're going to run out of spare parts. At that point, these sanctions become very important. Today, you know, they don't have an immediate impact, but they will. And in the end, they're going to make it very difficult for Russia to maintain the, the war machine that it has. But that's going to take time. Gerard, do the Russian people feel these sanctions? Is it, do you think it's bothering Putin, the sanctions? And are we doing enough? It's hard to know exactly what's happening within Russia because of you know, there's essentially no foreign media and it's only state-controlled media. But the Russian government is still publishing some statistics. 
One thing they're still publishing are weekly estimates of consumer prices in Russia. And these are official Russian statistics. And by that measure, as of April 8th, so recently, consumer prices in Russia had increased about 10% since the start of the war. Now, for comparison, last calendar year, 2021, the full year, they had about 8% inflation. So it's, a bit, it's more than a year's worth of inflation, which was already high by their standards, less than two months. So they are almost certainly feeling it in the pocketbook and in the wallet. At a higher level, there's a question of what it's actually doing to Russia's balance of payments. The thing that people keep pointing out, especially over the past month or so, is that Russia is continuing to export energy, its main commodity, so oil and gas. The sanctions have carve-outs for these exports. Your, your, you know, Europe in particular is still buying them, but the rest of the world as well. Russia is earning something like $1 billion per day from those revenues. That has not stopped, nor is it being directly targeted by the sanctions overall. What the net effect of that is, is that according to Russian data, Russia's current account surplus, which includes a trade surplus, but also services and, and income payments, that is actually at a record high. So as of March, it was about $20 billion, which is the highest it's been in at least five years, as far as the data is concerned. There is a theory that has not been fully tested, which is that essentially what's happening is Russia is still exporting, but it can't import as much. So those numbers go up. Russia has not reported specific data in terms of customs of, of goods trade, but they do have some data on the balance of payment side, which actually does not, as of March at least, does not support the hypothesis that Russian imports have contracted a lot. Also, they are continuing, there's some data on purchasing managers' indices, so PMIs, or basically surveys, where you can see what's happening in various sectors. The manufacturing sector in Russia is contracting as of March, but not nearly as severely as it did at the beginning of the COVID outbreak in 2020. So the headline data looks like it's, say, a pretty bad, but not horrendous, not as bad as it was at the beginning of COVID. And the main reason for that is that Russia is still selling energy. It's still earning hard currencies through those loopholes. And the fact that you know, Europe is still buying gas. So that's where I think a lot of the economic debate is. And a lot of what when people say, are the sanctions working? Well, sort of. And it, some of the things do take time, like Bill is saying, particularly the export controls, they're, they sort of will gradually hollow out the industrial sector, especially the military industrial sector in Russia. But I think there's where the debate has gone in recent weeks is saying, are we doing enough to really deal with the fact that Russia is still be able to fund its war effort. And it's very hard to get around the fact that we're still the West in general, the world is buying Russian energy. Well, I want to ask both of you, is the US, are we defining our goals clearly enough when it comes to the imposition of sanctions on Russia? Usually the goal of sanctions is to deter behavior, you know, to prevent something bad from happening. And if the goal of the sanctions or at least the threat of the sanctions initially, was to prevent an invasion, then you have to say they failed. You know, we threatened, we said we were going to do these things. It didn't stop Putin. The invasion happened. And, and from that perspective, you know, we were not successful. At that point, we pulled the trigger and imposed all the sanctions that we're talking about. It's not entirely clear to me what we expect to happen. I guess the, the ideal scenario is that the economy will be so hurt that there will be protests inside Russia, and that Putin will be forced to back off. No sign of that happening, despite military reversals, no sign of that happening. If anything, he's doubling down. So it's hard to argue that they've been effective. 
If you look at it from the long-term perspective, have we made Russia a global pariah? Yes. Uh, are we basically knocking them out of most global commerce, aside from energy? Yes. Are we crippling their economy for the long term? Probably yes. Is that going to have an effect on the war? Not so clear. I would say, I mean, I agree with Bill that insofar as the goal was deterrence, we failed because the, the invasion happened. One important thing to note in that regard is that while the U.S. and others did threaten sanctions, what we threatened was actually less than we en ended up doing, meaning we did more sanctions than we said we would do. And the reason for that is basically that, that the U.S. and Europe really didn't know how strong the public reaction would be, what the political climate would be. So, so, for example, the White House, President Biden was saying before the war started that we were not thinking about kicking Russian banks off of the SWIFT network. We've ended up doing that for some of their major banks. No one was talking about at the time the sanctions we put on the Russian central bank, which were on the financial side have been the really big thing we've done, which froze more than half of the reserves, which they had built up to create so-called Fortress Russia. So the theory of deterrence, you know, it, it did fail, but in a sense, it wasn't fully tested because we failed to fully signal what we would end up doing. Now that the war is ongoing, I think there is a debate amongst policymakers and economists about what more can be done. And we could talk about what some of those extra measures might be. But what's interesting, and I think quite important strategically, is that the war is not static. I mean, Bill was talking about this briefly as well. There's kind of this theory that like, on one hand, we hope that it's going to cause Russia to pull back and have some political instability. So, so Putin panics and, and you know, withdraws his forces. We've not seen his indications. And frankly, people, if you press them on that, don't seem very optimistic that that would happen. The other theory is, well, look, these are, these are in for the long haul. The, the objective is to degrade the Russian economy and their ability to sustain the war effort over the long term. That second objective makes sense, but the war is not just long term. It might even be short or medium term. I mean, the Russians are clearly, they pulled back in the north. They're maneuvering for probably another offensive in the east. President Zelensky today posted a video in English with a very clear list with graphics of the weapon systems he wants to stay in the fight. So the emphasis is less now on the sanctions and more on the fact that they need heavy weaponry to continue fighting. Because if, if your theory is, well, look, this will break Russia, but it might take six months or two years or whatever, that doesn't help for the cities under siege in Ukraine. And it's certainly not the immediate priority of the Ukrainian government. They, they're trying to actually defend themselves and ultimately win the war. Is there room for more sanctions if Biden wanted to impose them? So putting aside the really big thing, which is to try to stop energy exports, there are other options which are, let's say, intermediate. One thing that people have been talking about is the idea of requiring countries that are trading with Russia to accumulate their revenues, or rather for Russia to accumulate its revenues in overseas escrow accounts. So the idea is that if, if you are, say, a Chinese exporter and you're selling something to Russia, Russia pays you, but that money then stays within China, not within Russia. The idea there is it prevents the Russians from having full access to, the, to those currencies, to the savings, and it also puts the onus on the trading country, so the other country, to comply with sanctions because basically they're the ones monitoring the flows. So that's one idea. Another idea, which has been batted around by some economists, is the idea of, of not directly saying you can't buy Russian energy, but imposing taxes on it. So you can, but there's a price. 
and the Western governments and implementing governments be the ones that would accumulate the revenues from from those taxes. It would sort of bite into Russia's ability to earn from those revenues and incentivize consumers and firms and others to get away from from using Russian energy. I think it would be hard to make third countries, you know, non-Western countries, those that are not with, you know, involved in sanctions, it would be hard to make them do that. The other thing which is more aggressive is we could, you know, try to compel other countries like China, India, and others to to stop trading certain items through the threat of secondary sanctions. That has serious diplomatic and possibly economic costs as well. And then finally, the elephant in the room is how do you stop the imports of Russian energy, especially gas, into Europe? And the debate in Europe, a lot of this is centered around Germany, which is the largest economy in the EU, but also a major importer of Russian gas. The Russian chancellor has been, over over recent weeks, essentially arguing with economists and arguing with their economic models, which are saying, you know, there's different projections, but cutting themselves off from Russian gas be something like two, maybe six and a half percent of, of German GDP, which is a major contraction. And he's saying, well, you can't trust those models. It's hard to model. It could be this much This is the worse. German chancellor saying this. Yes, correct. He's, he's directly criticizing the models. And I think it's, there's a fair point, which is that it is asking an awful lot of a democratically elected government to willfully put its own economy into recession, possibly deep recession, and hit its own industrial sector and its own employment in pursuit of what is essentially a foreign policy goal. So I, I understand the moral imperative to do that, but it's hard to expect any government to do that to itself. And the fact is, I think I would bet that if the U.S. were in Germany's position, if our government were in, in making that decision, we would say no. It's quite clear that the Biden administration does not want to do measures that will make inflation worse. They're worried about it for their own political reasons, which makes sense. But the fact is, it's asking an awful lot for Europe to stop buying Russian gas. Maybe this is a simple-minded question, but for a lot of Americans, isn't this as just as straightforward as, look, you can either do business in the United States or Russia, but you can't do business in both? Why aren't we just doing that? Well, we are. I mean, we pretty much. We 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 didn't buy any gas from them anyway, so it was easy for us to say we're not going to buy any more gas, uh, and we we banned oil purchases. So it's just this is an easier decision for the United States than it is for Europe. Uh, Russia was not one of our major trading partners. We buy things from them, mostly raw materials that are important. Uh, big ones are nickel, which is used in batteries and a number of other manufacturing applications. Palladium, uh, which is also a battery element, but also critical to catalytic converters. Titanium, which is airplane shells and other minerals. Russia is not the sole supplier of any of those things. So what you're talking here are you know workarounds and supply chain disruptions. For Europe, they get substantial amounts of gas and oil from uh, including for heat, you know, for, you know, residential heat as well as manufacturing from Russia. So a decision to cut that off has much greater consequences there than it does here. Uh, I mean, it's a dilemma. And, and I think the, the European dilemma is it's sort of a, you know, modern no pain, no gain kind of thing. Uh, if you really want to hurt them, that's what you have to do. Uh, because that will cut off their, their, the source of revenue, revenue that will, that keeps their, their war machine going. But it's not cost free. Now you also, you know, I was going to add on the question of what else we might do. Keep in mind a couple other things. One, this is a, a very public war because people have phones, you know, and you've got Ukrainians going into towns, taking videos of bodies, burning apartments, all these 
horrible things that we've seen. And these are going all over the world. They're not really getting into Russia very effectively, but and nor in China. But the rest of the world is seeing what is happening. And one of the consequences is there's a good bit of self-sanctioning going on. Companies are concerned about reputational risk. And they say, I don't want to be seen by my customers as doing business with these people. And so companies are voluntarily pulling out or stopping doing business. Ocean shipping companies, about, I think, half of the global tonnage, early on in the war, in the first few weeks, said, we're simply not going to do business with the Russians anymore. And nobody told them to do that. You know, they, that was voluntary. So that's going to grow. One of the other things that's happened, at first you sort of, you don't chuckle because nothing about this is funny, but you think, well, you know, so who cares about that is when you start knocking them out of cultural events or sports events, you know, people say, well, what difference does that make? You know, one of the stories about South Africa sanctions 40 years ago, in the mid-80s, what really made the difference in South Africa was when they got kicked out of the World Cup and the International Rugby Cup. Because for a sports bad country, that's a big deal. If you do that to the Russians, maybe that will have an impact on public opinion. Right now, because they're not getting news, they're not seeing these pictures, they're not getting this. You do things like that, it, it does have an impact. But like we were saying earlier, it's long term. It's not next week. Gerard, is it inevitable that Russia will default on its debt now that it's been cut off from accessing its stockpile of dollars? Well, technically, it already has, according to Standard & Poor's. So what happened was part of the, the most recent batch of U.S. sanctions, this is, didn't get the same headlines that the spare bank action did. But the U.S. Treasury prohibits Russia from making debt payments with funds that are within U.S. jurisdiction. So previously, there was basically a carve out saying that you're allowed to service your debt. You can access dollars for those purposes. This is saying if you want to use dollars to service your dollar debt, it has to be the dollars that you have within Russia, which is a much smaller supply. So the idea was to compel the Russians to use what little dollars or euros they had left to service that debt. Last week, the Russian government said that it would be servicing $650 million worth of dollar-denominated bonds by paying them in rubles. And Center and Poor's, which is a U.S. credit ratings agency, has said that this means that Russia is in selective default, meaning that it is deciding to default because those were dollar bonds, not ruble bonds. Technically, Russia has a 30-day grace period before they would be in full default, but I think they're not expected to make that. The issue with defaults, though, is that you know, Russia is already cut off from international capital markets. You know, Western entities are not allowed to buy Russian debt directly from Russia. They can trade it on the secondary market. So if you're trying to offload what you already bought, you can sell it to someone else in the West. But ultimately, this default issue is really about Russia's credibility after the war, after the sanctions. It doesn't really have an immediate effect because they're already cut off from, from additional financing from the West. So if we're doing all this... What more can we do that would really have an impact on Russia and might get them to, you know, pull back a bit, if not completely pull back? The single biggest thing would be to cut off their sales of oil and gas. To everyone? Well, to the extent we can. Yeah, we can't cut it off from China or India, but... No, and one of the depressing things about this episode is the Indian is making noises about buying Russian oil. With a discount, I, you know, the rumored discount would be 35%, which is extraordinary. But, you know, if you can't unload it anywhere else, they're going to do that. I don't know what the Chinese would do in that situation. They've been a customer, whether they'll bail out the Russians and allow, you know, simply buy more gas. Uh, 
you know, you don't know until you try. But certainly if you're thinking short term, if the Germans and, and the rest of Europe said tomorrow, close off the pipeline, this is the end of the story on gas, that would have an immediate impact on on Russia because that would be, like Gerard said, a billion dollars a day they wouldn't be getting. Now, you know, maybe they can make some of that up with China and India, but it'll take them a little while to make those arrangements. So there's going to be a, a gap there that will hurt them. Do we think sanctioning Putin's family members is an effective strategy? It's a giant cat and mouse game. You know, they hide, we find, they hide somewhere else, we find. It's a harassment technique that you have to do that. I don't think it's going to have a material impact on uh, on the outcome. Putin has this worldview, which is sort of messianic when it comes to Ukraine. In order to save them, we have to destroy them, I guess. is. Uh, I don't see any sign that there's that you're going to get him, that you're going to be able to change that. People who've dealt with the Russians before uh, generally will say that in this kind of situation, uh, what they understand is, is power, and you really have to defeat them on the battlefield, which the Ukrainians actually have been doing. And to the extent that we can give them the equipment they need to enable them to continue doing that, that will probably make the biggest difference. And if you can starve Russia financially, then you, you accelerate that development. Gerard? So just to clarify, the, the most recent batch of U.S. sanctions did impose full blocking sanctions on Russian elites, including Putin's adult children. So this is something we're already trying. It was also one after Foreign Minister Lavrov's wife and daughter. So there are other elites being targeted. I agree with Bill that, you know, you can hope that has an effect, but it's not clear that it would make much of a difference. There, those people in particular are going to be committed to the regime and committed to Russia and probably have at least a fair amount of wealth already within Russia they can still ac access in rubles. I, I really agree and want to emphasize Bill's point that uh, basically at the margins at this point in the conflict, I think we've hit diminishing returns with sanctions, both in terms of our political willingness to, to impose them, including on our own allies or other countries, and also their, their actual relevance to the conflict. I understand the sympathies of, of wanting to you know, not buy blood gas that the Russians are selling. But I really think, and I believe the Ukrainian view at this point is, what they really need are heavy weapons to, to defend and counterattack. And that's exactly what President Zelensky is saying. I would highlight your previous guest, Dr. Elliot Cohen, who was talking about the importance of military support. And obviously, in the economics program, you, know, you have an economic bias. But, but I think we're pretty close to saying, no, 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 this is great. We can continue with sanctions. I support those sanctions. But the thing we really want to focus on at the margins here is military aid to keep, to keep the Ukrainians in the fight. Makes a lot of sense. Gentlemen, thank you so much for sharing your expertise today. Really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 